Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that I might be spirit-filled, that the message might be from you. Lord, that our flock might be fed, that each one of us might be challenged and encouraged. And Lord, that those who are here that don't know you, Lord, we don't know hearts, you do. Maybe even a member of this church that just kind of go along, but does not have that personal relationship, Lord, that today you would shine the light of salvation in their heart. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 20 is John's story of the resurrection. As far as the disciples were concerned, all hope was lost. Jesus had told them he was going to Jerusalem, he was going to be crucified, he was going to die, and he would rise again. And remember when he went to minister to Lazarus and raised him from the dead before he called him back from the tomb. He told his sister that he would rise and she said, yes, Lord, in the resurrection. It's easy for us as humans to take God's word, make it palatable to our own minds. In other words, easy, something we can figure out and say, okay, there it is. But somebody rising from the dead is totally out of our way of thinking. It just doesn't happen. And when Jesus went to raise Lazarus from the dead, he said, roll the tomb away. And what did Martha say? Lord, he stinks now. You don't understand. I don't know what, you could have been here earlier. I don't know what you were thinking, but that's not going to work. I think so often we look at things like that. And we limit God by our own experience. Seems like this last year, and and I I give Clayton a hard time tongue-in-cheek, that ever since we really began to prepare our people to deal in counseling from the Word of God, we've had all, all these kinds of problems. And the truth is, we tend as humans just to kind of suppress problems. We'll deal with it ourselves, and sometimes these things remain kind of underneath, and then they erupt and say, oh, so-and-so fell. They didn't fall. They've been going down a road toward destruction for a while. They were just keeping it to themselves. And then all of a sudden, it comes to the surface. We've seen a number of marriages this last year just get hammered by, the, by Satan. I'm so thankful in our church, it's not our goal to shoot the wounded. Do you know what I mean by that? Sometimes people get into sin, they get into trouble, and we say, oh, well, um, you know, maybe you should find someplace else to go. No, no, that's what the church is about. Someone shared at one point uh, negatively, oh, that's the cheating church. In other words, if you've had trouble in your life, or you've cheated in your, in your marriage, or you've had some sin, that's the church you go to. Amen and amen. This is a church full of sinners, saved by grace, looking for the opportunity to minister the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. That's why we're open for anybody to come, because that's our heart, to minister, to love them with the love that Jesus Christ has loved us with. And so his disciples... The women all came to the tomb expecting nothing because they didn't believe. 
there needed to be evidence for them. And God in his grace gave them the evidence they needed. So if you take all the gospels and kind of put them together, how did it happen? If you look at Matthew chapter 28, early in the morning, probably before it was light, there was an earthquake as Jesus' body, as, he, as he came, his, his life entered back into that body. And his body was changed like ours, ours is going to be in the resurrection or in the rapture. In a moment, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, in the twinkling of an eye, we will all be changed. We'll get those glorified bodies. That's when Jesus got his glorified body. His body that was there in the tomb came to life. And as he came to life, he passed right through those grave clothes. Remember when they had to, uh, when Lazarus rose from the dead, he kind of hopping out and Jesus said, loose him, let him go. Why? Because the stuff they put around him could suffocate him. They'd have to do it all over again, right? And so he said, loose him and let him go. That didn't happen with Jesus. And there was an earthquake. The soldiers were there guarding the tomb to make sure that the disciples didn't come and steal the body. If the high priest only knew the Disciples, that's the last thing they wanted to do. They just wanted to keep their life. And then an angel came down and rolled the stone away so we could see that no one was there. Jesus had risen from the grave. He had a glorified body. He could just pass through walls just like he did his grave, the grave wrappings. He just passed right through them. And later he just shows up in a room. When you get your glorified body, this is the amazing thing about the millennium here on earth. When Jesus comes back, sits on the throne of David, and we rule and reign with Christ, every believer is going to have their glorified body. Now think about this. So there's going to be humans that made it through the tribulation, and then those humans will have other children. Jesus is going to be ruling personally in Jerusalem. They can go and see him. All of these other supernatural beings, you and I with our glorified body, they're going to be there ruling and reigning with Christ. And it starts out in the millennium that everybody is a believer, but as they have children, those children make a choice whether to receive Christ or reject Christ. And after some time, after the thousand years, Satan is loosed again, and he's able to get a large company to come against Christ again for the final battle. You say, how can that be? Perfect environment perfect government, what it shows is the wicked heart of man, that apart from a miracle, he can't believe. Apart from God working in a heart, they can't believe. What we have here is a record of their unbelief until Jesus touches their heart. And so if we just look at all of those together, you have the earthquake, Angel comes down, rolls the stone away, and causes such fear in these soldiers' heart that they just faint. A lot of people think they can stand up against God. They are so tough. This wasn't even God. This was just his angels. They show up, and these guys melt. Why? Because they have that power. And so they're laying there in a dead faint, and pretty soon, I suppose, one by one, they come to, and they look around, and they feel kind of stupid, and they run. But knowing that's death to a Roman soldier that leaves his post, they go to the high priest and say, here's what happened, guys. He really rose from the dead. In the face of a miracle, 
the high priest say, hey, listen, listen, tell you what. Let's just not worry about him rising from the dead. You just tell people that his disciples came and stole his body away. The Bible says that story was around for a long time. And then if, if anything happens, we'll make it good with the, with the uh, governor. Now, recently, I forced myself every once in a while to watch these silly things that come on TV that are called the Bible. They got the Romans in this last one, you know, really being vengeful and trying to keep Jesus in the grave and, and killing all the soldiers there. Rome didn't care. Rome didn't care as long as it didn't cause them problems. Who cared were the high priests. Look at the record. It just stirs me up so terrible when people are writing stories about the Bible and they ignore the script. But then I calm myself down and realize that most of them are lost. They're just in it for a buck. And so, but why, why do they do that? Why do you think they do that? It's so that you, when you come to the scripture, say, well, it's not important what the Bible says. What's important is what you think. Because after all, you are the measure. No, we're not the measure. God is the measure. And it's such a blessing when you, every once in a while you find somebody that actually looks at the record and says, hey, why don't we just stick with the script as it's written that God gave us? But when we take all those scripts together, we have the angels come down rolling the stone away. The Roman soldiers fainting, they get up, getting up and leaving. And then Mary Magdalene and her friends coming to minister and finish preparing the body. And while they're coming, they're talking among themselves. They're saying, who's going to roll a stone away? Mary Magdalene, she gets out in front of the other girls. She's probably just quiet thinking, what are we going to do? If you've ever had to deal with that in your home where you've had a loved one that's died and, and the thoughts of seeing that loved one in a casket, we've had to do that. And you kind of have to prepare yourself. And especially with Jesus, he was all their hope. The hope of the world. And so... She kind of got out ahead. And uh, she gets to the tomb and sees that it's empty. And now she's angry. So she books. She goes back to tell the disciples. Somebody has stolen his body. In the meantime, the rest of the women show up. And there's the angels. One at the foot, one at the head of where Jesus used to be. He's not there anymore. And the angels tell those women, go tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. Now, this is supernatural. They have a supernatural message. He's risen, but he's not there. So they still don't have a good idea of what's going on. But they believe. And they go back to tell the disciples. And the disciples mock them. Maybe you found the wrong tomb. Ah, you just can't trust women do anything, right? Isn't it interesting that Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene, a woman? So they kind of mock, but they're, I think Peter and John are probably on the, on the way. They run into Mary Magdalene. And he says, somebody's stolen the body, so they take off. And John gets, if you look at the, the, the scripture here, John gets an opportunity to kind of put down, and I was faster. Uh, the one whom Jesus loved ran faster. 
Peter was probably older, maybe heavier, I don't know. But uh, John comes to the tomb and he stops. Not Peter, he pushes him out of the way and jumps right in the middle of it, looking around. And Warren Wiersbe points out that in verses 5, 6, and 8, there are three different words that are used to describe what happened. So Simon goes also following into the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And that first word for saw is just kind of, you looked at something, and he's just looking around. He's not getting it yet. And the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, would roll up in a place by itself. So, verse 8, the other disciples who had first come to the tomb, then also entered. He beat Peter there, but he stopped at the outside, and he's looking from the outside. The second saw in, in verse 6 is begin to think about it. Well, this is kind of weird. And then when John went inside, verse 8, so the other disciple who had come first to the tomb also entered. He saw and believed. And then it says, for as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise again from the dead. Up till that point, What Jesus had taught them was not registering. How often does that happen in our life? Jesus said, cast all your care on me because I care for you. And you go, Lord, that's great. That's great, you know. But let me just handle this. And we get stressed out and burdened when the Bible says, no, be anxious for nothing but everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Well, that's what the Bible says, but, right? We know what he said, but. Now, I still don't know, think they understood everything it meant, but they accepted his word based on the evidence because of what they saw. Now, what did they see? That. What, the, what Joseph and Nicodemus had put around the body, all the spices, almost acted like a glue because they wanted to seal in all the smells as long as they could. Remember in this uh, Jewish tradition, what would happen is they would wrap the body, they would try to seal it up as much as possible, then they would seal the tomb and you were supposed to bury a Jewish body within 24 hours. They normally didn't embalm. And so the body would be in the tomb, they'd roll the stone, then they would seal the tomb because where they would have these family graves was also a place they'd have a little farm. Maybe they raised uh, olive trees or they'd have a vineyard, and so it would just be part of it. Maybe their house was a little bit away and what they'd quarried out of the side of the hill for stone was used to build. And so they had to be there. So as much as you could keep the smells of corruption down you had to work there so it was better so everything was sealed up so when they came if somebody had stolen the body first of all they wouldn't take time if they're still in the body to unwrap the body that'd be that'd be silly if they did they'd leave it in a mess and if it was a grave robber they wouldn't leave the expensive spices they'd use they take those they were worth money but instead what they found was the empty cocoon basically of the grave clothes where Jesus had been and just came through 
There's been a lot of uh, study of the Shroud of Turan. You know what that is? It's supposed to be something you wrap Jesus with. And the one thing I can't explain is how the image got onto that cloth, if indeed it's real. Dr. Bookman thinks it's real. But Jesus' body was a new creation. And so the best they could think is when he came back to life, there was an explosion of light that just transferred, as it were, like a photograph onto that shroud of Tron, and then he just passed through. And the head wrapping was separate, and so it was still in its form also. And that shape itself said something different happened here. How do you take that body out of there without disrupting the way it was wrapped? And after John and Peter saw, it looked, and then examined, they believed. And it says they went back to their homes. They had places they were staying there in Jerusalem. They had all the information. They believed the information. But what else are you going to do? Maybe he rose from the dead and he's going to leave them. They still have to deal with now. They still have to figure out what they're going to do. And so they continue to meet together. And the women show up later as they're gathered together. And they say, we've seen Jesus. They mock him. Mary Magdalene, she comes back to the tomb now. The disciples have left. And she is just weeping because she doesn't believe. She doesn't know anything yet. She doesn't know what the disciples know. She hasn't considered the evidence She just thinks still somebody has stolen the body away. And she sees the angels. And the angels say, woman, why are you weeping? Oh, just tell me. Just tell me where you've laid them. I'll take care of them. I'll take care of him. Her great love. Great love and unbelief. And then Jesus says, Mary... And she knows his voice. You see, the disciples saw the evidence and they believed. Mary had a message from angels and she still didn't believe, but she heard the voice of her Savior. And she said, Rabboni, teacher, master. And she ran to hold on to him. And she said, he said, Mary, you can't cling to me. I'm not here for very long. heart fills with joy she returns with the other women to meet with the the disciples and most of them just they just don't understand even though they believe a certain amount they can't they can't really figure it out and later that same day in the evening they're trying to figure this out and wrestle with this and Jesus just shows up in the room can you imagine the joy the weeping and the laughing. There he is. He said, now look, fellas, there it is. See, there's the marks on my wrist. Check out the wound in my side. And they believe. Their life will never be the same. And he gives them instruction to go to Galilee. He sent that with the women also. Tell them to go to Galilee. He's going to be there 40 days. In the next chapter, they're going to be down close to their hometown of the Sea of Galilee. We've been there. He 
He's going to minister to them then. And it seems like his ministry is just showing up here and there. Later, people are leaving Jerusalem and, and uh, maybe because of the instruction of the women gave to them, tell my disciples to go to Galilee. They're walking along and he shows up. They don't recognize him. So he says, oh, tell me what you're talking about. You, you must be a stranger. You haven't heard what's going on in Jerusalem. And he finally gets to a place. And he says, oh, slow to believe. And their eyes were open and they recognized him and poof, he was gone. Now, one thing you understand from that, that's the same body you're going to have one day. During the millennium, you're not going to have to use the planes like everybody else. You're just going to be where God tells you to be. Pretty amazing, huh? You don't need to have one of those Star Trek things where you kind of, no, no, you're just going to be there. Because the Bible says in 1 John chapter 3 that we're going to be like him. He said, beloved, now we are the children of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. Everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as Christ is pure. The desire for holiness is all wrapped up in the hope that we have that we're going to be like Christ in every way one day. We're always going to be human. He's always going to be God. But we're going to have a glorified body just like him. Well, Thomas shows up eight days later. Now, By now, they're probably down in Galilee. And he says, you guys are easily fooled. You probably just saw a spirit. I don't know what Thomas thought, but he said, he took a big stand like a lot of people do. I won't believe unless. Maybe you have relatives. Well, I'm not going to believe unless. Now, I think that's kind of scary because then we're putting God to the test. But why don't you know something as someone who is praying for someone and you think, I don't know what it's going to take to see them come to Christ. Remember this, God is able to save to the uttermost. He is able. And whatever it's going to take in that person's life, the Holy Spirit knows, and that's what he's going to do. You look at your own testimonies. Some of you grew up in church, and you came to Christ, that's a miracle. Even when a little child begins to understand that they're a sinner and they, they trust Christ their Savior, that's a miracle. Some of you have come on a different path and you're saying, well, unless God does, God has to do this. God has to do that. You're in a dangerous position if you're the one saying that. Because you don't know your life is going to be there tomorrow. James writes, he says, what's your life? But just a vapor appears for a little time, vanishes away. People leave suddenly, don't they? They're just gone. Car accident, they're gone. So if that's your attitude, well, God is going to have to do this before. When you know that he died on the cross for your sin, he rose again, you know the facts of those things, you, you understand historically, and that as a human being, you need a Savior, and so there needs to be that confession, that agreement with God that I'm lost without Jesus Christ, but he is able to save if I will trust him as Savior. If you have that information, you're still saying, well, unless God does this, or he's got it, that's a dangerous position to be. But if you're ministering to somebody like that, don't be afraid. He is able. He is able. Continue to pray. Continue to give them the gospel. You don't have to keep coming up with proofs. God is able to do what he needs to do in their life to turn the light on. I want you to look at this passage. I don't often do this, but turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
Because I want you to put your, I want, I can quote it, but I want you to put your finger on it. So you can go back there later. I love this chapter. Verse 6. This is, a, this is an amazing verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. So he's going back to creation. When God said, let there be light, there was only darkness. He created light before he created light bearers. Look at it. Go back and look at Genesis. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. What is he saying? Salvation is a miracle on the equal of when God created light. It takes that kind of ex nihilo, that means something from nothing, miracle for a person to come to Christ. So your best ministry when you're ministering is on your knees. You always think, if I could just come up with the illustration, or God could do something supernatural. Look at the book of Revelation. God is doing supernatural thing after supernatural thing and bringing all these things on the earth. And most people are getting what? There's no doubt. There are no atheists in the tribulation. You know that? By the time you get to there's no atheists. There's just those that love God and those that hate him. After all those supernatural things, what do they do? They just get harder and harder and more and more bitter. It takes the special miracle of God giving understanding, just like when John and Peter looked at the wrappings and they went, oh, this is supernatural. He's, a, he's alive. Or when Mary heard his voice, or when he shows up eight days later and he says, Thomas, okay, here you go. God is not intimidated, and you should not be intimidated by his ability to save somebody. It's so easy for us to start living on this earth and start thinking that we've got to do it. I've got to talk my friend into getting saved so they don't go to hell. You can't talk. If you talk them into it, they didn't get saved. See? And the Bible says in Psalm 49, the redemption of a soul is so expensive, just stop trying because you can never redeem your brother. Peter writes and he explains that a little bit. He says, listen, we're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And the Holy Spirit is able to minister to a heart. And I think the way it works, I don't know if you want to write this in your theology books or not, because this is just Pablo talking. But in my understanding... The Holy Spirit begins to burden us with our friends, with our loved ones. Because he wants to show us what he can do. He's always working to increase our faith. He allows us to go through trials. How come? Paul says in Romans 5, so that next time we get to that trial, we'll go, okay, God has this one. Why? Because faith works, patience, patience, experience of what? Experience that God has, we've been here before, and the Lord has never failed. He's, he's never going to leave us. He hasn't brought here to leave us alone, brought us here to leave us alone. 
What confidence. This last week, Carl was ministering in our, in our Bible study, and he said, you know, the biggest challenge I have in my life, and we all identify with him at men, is just to leave my hands off it. When do we get angry? Well, when all of a sudden the business deal isn't going through or we're, we're, we're looking at that job or the house or whatever. And all of a sudden it looks like all of a sudden it's just not going to happen. We go, Lord, we try to grab the wheel. Lord, no, no, we got we to gotta go this way. And we're miserable and we're stressed out. And you know what? You want to go there? Go ahead. But the Bible says, be anxious for just the big stuff, right? Get angry about the big stuff. No, no, no. James 1.19 says, The anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. Oh, that's a man verse, isn't it? That's a man verse that I don't know women have a problem with that. But I, every guy ought to memorize that verse. Now, if you work in the construction field, if you don't participate in anger, you experience a lot of anger, don't you? Something's not going to happen on time, and so that... That guy that's supposed to be doing that job or he's not going to show up just uses all kinds of anger. So you go, hey, we don't have to act like that. Why? Because we have the Lord. And we know that he is directing our path. And so we can say, okay, okay, Lord, I'm I'm listening now. I thought this was going to be smooth, but you have my attention. And then we get to see what God does. And it's always better Far beyond all that we could act, ask, or think. Think about that. What God is going to do in our lives is supernatural. It's far beyond what you could, what, imagine. So, a lot of times we'll think, well, I think it's going to work out like this. Probably not. But if it's the Lord, it'll be better. And so God burdens our heart with someone and we say, Lord, it's... You pray for them. I got friends I've been praying for for 30 years. And it just seems like some of them just go further away into sin. Others get further steeped in their own false religion. I think, oh, Lord. Lord, what are we going to do about that? You know what he tells us to do? Pray. Pray. The fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. This is God's work. He is able to shine the light of salvation in their heart, just like he spoke these worlds into existence, just like he said, let there be light, and there was light. That's what it's going to take. So Thomas sees, he believes. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. How come you believed? Are you better than them? No, no. We needed them to testify. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, this is the, really the gospel in a nutshell. You've heard the gospel in a nutshell as being John three sixteen, But this really incorporates everything in the gospel. Paul says, I delivered you as a first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, after he appeared to them more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, 
he appeared to Paul. As to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. See, we needed Jesus to show up to affirm their faith so we would have their testimony. But the reason you believed because you got the same thing they did. You had the Holy Spirit that gave you the understanding, that gave you the faith to believe. And then 20, the last two verses say, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John puts the same thing at the end of 1 John, his epistle. I wrote this book. All these things that Jesus did in the presence of the apostles that are going to testify to the world that you might believe that he is the Christ. But it's hard to believe. And you have liberal theologians that try to tear the miracles apart and try to explain things away. Why? Because they can't believe them. Why? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that they're spiritually discerned. They come to the Bible. We hear it all the time. Sam was telling me a guy he was witness to. Oh, I've read through the Bible cover to cover. And what that is is the cover and the cover. I don't believe them. And even if they did, it's no wonder they don't understand it. They're reading somebody else's mail. It takes the Holy Spirit in a life before you can understand the Word of God. Things of the Spirit of God are only for those that have the Spirit of God. And the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, By grace are we saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Even the gift to believe. It's not like you have this work of believing and then God blesses you with the rest. No, no, no. Even the faith to believe is a gift from God. It's him shining the light of salvation in your heart. And that light came on and you went, oh. And your life was changed. That's why this is such an amazing book to take unbelievers through. Because this is the gospel to the world. Jesus Christ, the creator of the world, the second person of the Godhead, took upon him flesh, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He lived his life. He fulfilled every prophecy about himself. He healed the blind. He raised the dead. He cast out demons. But for you to take all those facts and place your trust in him takes the miracle of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're there. Maybe you're saying, Lord, I want to believe. In Mark chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, a father had heard about Jesus, his ability to heal and cast out demons. He brought his son who was always going into convulsions and sometimes throwing himself into the fire. And he said, your disciples prayed and they couldn't do anything. And brings them to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father cries out. You can just understand as a dad. The pressure in his heart. Oh, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Listen, Jesus hears that prayer. Jesus hears that prayer. 
It's not about you believing enough. Belief is you placing your trust in his finished work. It's almost like giving up. The Bible says, one of my favorite verses, Psalm 46.10, cease striving and know that I am God. Isn't that awesome? The Bible says, the wicked are like the troubled sea. They're always casting up mire and dirt and it cannot rest. It cannot rest. But Jesus says, come unto me. All you that are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Father, we're so thankful that salvation was provided for us. Lord, none of us are good enough or smart enough to try to work this out on our own. And Lord, if there are people here that think that's what it is, it's like, well, I just need a little more information. I need a little bit more self-transformation. Oh, Lord, I pray that you bring them to the end of themselves this morning, that they would give up and just simply trust you. Lord, I pray now as we gather around the table that you would prepare our hearts because, Lord, we realize that all that we are, all that we have belongs to you because you paid it all on the cross. You finished our salvation. There's nothing left for us to do but receive it and become a reflection of your grace in your life to those that are around us. Lord, I pray during this time of remembrance that you might stir us up. That you're coming again. And we will stand before you and Lord, we want to hear well done. So Lord, work in our hearts as your children to remove the dross and those things that stand in our way of just fully trusting all of our areas and, 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 and kind of hiding our light under a bushel. Lord, that we would trust you. Lord, that we be reminded of sin left unconfessed, Lord, that we bring those and confess them. That we might come with clean hands. And then energize us, Lord, that this is a time of powerful worship, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.